Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. The book club where we blast ass. (laughs) What? I'm drunk. I don't know. I'm not drunk. You're not drunk. I had tackies and I'm feeling fiery, baby. (laughs) I guess your ass is about to get blasted by those tackies. I hate that you said that. I hate that you started this with such a psychotic energy. <laughs> you guys that we famously dislike scat humor. <laughs> Is that what it's called? I guess. Anyway, we don't like it and I don't approve of what I just said. This statement is not co-signed by me, the sayer. (laughs) I backed you into a corner and I'm so sorry. I had nowhere to go but butt jokes. Nasty. What I meant by that, (laughs) what I meant is that in this podcast, we're going to get fiery like the Takis in my tummy. (laughs) You guys, this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club, the podcast where we, Claire and Ashley, read memoirs so that nobody else has to. Because at the end of the day, book reading is for nerds, okay? And we are happy to take that bullet, happy to be that dork, but with it, the payoff, okay? So what you get is the book read for you. What you pay is that we're going (laughs) to blast ass. I couldn't say it. (laughs) Try it again. What you pay is that we're going to blast ass and give our full opinion. No holds bars. I'm crying. (laughs) What have I done? I did something awful. (laughs) I'll tell you what. You've unleashed something that should have stayed leashed forever. Okay. Deep breaths. I just wanted to let you guys know when I said that we're going to blast ass. What Ashley meant is we might say mean things and you're just going to have to freaking brace yourself. You guys, Claire's having a complete mental breakdown right now because she, unlike our memoirist this week, apparently doesn't have the heart and the constitution of a champion. Can I tell you something? I know for fucking sure I don't. And there's one thing I learned reading this book is I kept putting the book down going, oh, I am mediocre to my core. And I've like <laughs> always known it, but I've never like thought about it. I think about it all the time. It really hurts my feelings. Like, I, like, acknowledge that at this moment in my life, I'm mediocre, but there's always this idea that in our line of work, there is no true ceiling. So any minute, the tables could turn and I could be huge. And reading this book, I went, oh, no, 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 no. The tables are never turning. I'm very concretely sitting in my seat. <laughs> the table I was born at is the table I'll die at and whatevs. But I also am like, the truth of me is I love to hang out with my friends. And if that's what you get for not being a champion, like I'll take it. You get friendship, you get relationship. But I love to hang out with my friends. I know we hang out all the time and I love it. So I'm like not even that mad about it. Speaking of our friends, should we thank the reviewers? Please, please, please. If you gave us a five star review, we are forever in debted. Gratituded. I think we owe them something. Our gratitude. I just want to thank the five-star reviewers, Birdie the Kitty. Oh my God, two animals at once. Careless Snoot. We care about your snoot. Cunt Army Supporter. Thank you for the support of that army. Iriona S. I love you. My broad. Thank you so much. E-L-H- A-B-P, I'm not going to try and pronounce it, but I appreciate you. The Muffin Man, thank you for your baked goods. Ba, 
1851410. If that's your social security number, let me know. Only writes for bad apps. I hope that you someday get a good appetizer. King Dav, oh, aka not Ashley Olson. Oh, God, I adore you. Ease 819, thank you so much. Office Magnolia, thank you for bringing a flower to the office. Is Magnolia a flower? Yeah. Unless they're steel, then they're women. (laughs) Thank you guys for the five-star reviews. It truly means the world to us. We text them to each other every day, and we just smile at our phones. Also, can I say another thing that you can do? If you like us, we have a Patreon, and if you want to subscribe to it, we do a bonus episode every single week. Anyway, that being said, housekeeping being kept, Claire, Mm -hmm. if you were to write a memoir, what would you title it this week? The tide is turning, and by that I mean literally and ge- ge- geologishly it was so fucking hot and all i can think about is how bad global warming is ain't that the truth i'm like now trying to reevaluate my whole life because i used to be like well one day i want to have kids and a family and maybe even grandkids and now i'm like oh i may not live to see 40 so is that the tide that's turning yeah it's literally the tides i mean they're less turning more rising that's true they're turning in a way where like if they were going straight now they're going up Yeah, they're coming for my neck. They're coming for our throats. (laughs) Dangerous. I will not turn off my AC, though, because I'm not going to die on the way out. Can I tell you what I was thinking that will be funny one day? It's inevitable that the tides will turn up and everybody will be underwater. They'll get turned. The tides will get turned. (laughs) And global warming will take us all but i feel like there will be a point of no return where we can see how imminent it is and then like i actually like, think that that was like last week no but i feel like there will be a point where like society just goes buck wild and the image i have is like nobody even pretends to respect nature anymore and i'm just imagining me going like boxing glove style with pigeons do you know what i mean just like <laughs> <laughs> me like towing up in the street with random ass birds anything that comes my way i'll do you put- think the reason that you've never boxed a bird is because of your respect for nature yeah because i don't think anybody would like that about me if people saw me punching pigeons in the face at like washington square park they would lock me up i really don't think that's true i've seen crazy shit at washington square park okay well at least there'd be a facebook status about me being like hey guys i saw something really upsetting don't book claire parker and then i'd be like i'm only not getting booked because i hit that pigeon in the face once i guess just like don't box a pigeon until you're sure you don't want to run for office I also just imagine people picking up handfuls of dirt and eating it like, this is my dirt. Like, we don't have to even. (laughs) I don't think that that is what people are waiting for. Okay, well, we'll see. (laughs) Can I bring back a Who's Tabs thing? You guys, we used to have a podcast called, hold on one second, we're talking about Britney Spears, where we liked to uh, spur conversations using hashtags that we could all communicate with each other over the internet. If you've been waiting for global warming <laughs> to scoop dirt into your mouth with your hands, tweet at us with the hashtag, yes, global warming <laughs> is the thing I've been waiting for to eat dirt. Just real quick, hashtag, yes, global warming is the thing I've been waiting for to eat dirt. I'm just imagining anarchy vis-a-vis nature (laughs) and like a lack of respect. (laughs) Okay. Anyway, carrying on. Ashley. Yeah, Claire. What would the name of your memoir this week be? Oh, God. In absolute contrast to your turning the tide and waiting for things to turn up. I've decided to let the chips fall where they may. That's Mm. my theme this week. You know me. I get anxious about a lot of things that are out of my control and I feel like 
I really thought that this summer would be, I don't know, I had a lot of hope for it after a year and a half indoors to be like outside running around going buck wild, not fighting a pigeon, but like maybe (laughs) making out with a lot of strangers, you know? And I feel like whenever I'm like going into a situation, like a night out being like, this is what I hope it'll be. I have the worst night ever. And so I decided to go into the rest of the summer with zero expectations. And even the rest of my life with zero expectations, whenever I just lower the expectations, things always get happier. This is 30. (laughs) The bars on the floor. I meant this to sound optimistic. But instead, I'm like, well, I want for nothing. I believe in nothing. (laughs) Let's see what happens next. I think that's a good place to be. I think so, too. I feel like I'm having fun. So I think I am. I think we've been having fun. I think I'm having so much fun. I think that me someone who will never be a champion in my mind that's the goal I got so stressed out this week because okay here's the thing I'm loving freelancing but one hiccup that I've found that is a tough combo with my personality I get really anxious to ask for money and so since I started freelancing at the end of the month when I have to invoice everybody I get so much anxiety just built up in my chest and I've had just like a stressful week because the idea of the end of the month coming and I have to just like email people with the money they owe me it like really sends shivers down my spine and it ruins like four days of my week the anticipation of it and then the action and then once I do it I'm like okay that was good that was easy and now I get money. Okay, should we move on to this week's topic? Yes, we should. I am so excited because before we get into John McEnroe, tennis's number one heartthrob bad boy from Queens. I don't know that he's the number one heartthrob. Okay, I don't think so either, but I just, you know how I'm like so judgmental about looks? Yeah. I was just like, well, he's ugly. Maybe people like him. I can't tell anymore. (laughs) Anyway, he's definitely a person who played tennis. I mean, read his book. And this week, to contextualize his success in the world, we brought on Bravo Liberty hilarious comedian and content creator and former professional tennis player Hannah Burner. Hannah, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, guys. Okay, can I ask you off the top just some literal tennis questions? Yes. One, how does tennis get scored? Oh my god, I love this for us. We're learning so much. I once watched tennis for like an hour with my friend and she finally was like, wait, so you're trying to get it in the line? I'm like, You've just been watching for an hour. What do you think has been happening? Okay, so tennis is a game. You have to hit the ball within the lines. Your serves are going in the boxes. You're alternating serves and scoring. It goes 15, 30, not 45, 40. And then if you're both at 40, it's deuce, and you do add in, add out. It's a little hard to just explain out here, but believe me, the rules are simple once you get them. And the sets, so that you have to win two out of three sets. Mm-hmm. to win the match and to win a set you need six games and if you get to five all you do seven five or if you get to six all you play a tie break wow okay Copy. I want to back it up right quick <laughs> let's talk about your tennis experience really quick and why we brought you on as the tennis expert I do want to get that in oh, but- okay sorry I was like I don't even care about Hannah tell me about play courts <laughs> she goes what is So my tennis career, I started playing when I was like three or four. I grew up in Brooklyn and then my grandpa had a place in Shelter Island, Long Island where he had a tennis court. So I'd go out, I'd like eat the hard shoe, I'd play around. My dad was like a classic, wanted me to be an athlete and I was showing prowess early on, good hand-eye coordination, who knows. Then by the time I was like seven or eight, I got my own coach. And then by the age of 12, I was playing nationally. By the age of 
14, I was ranked top 15 in the nation. Oh my God. And then I went to Florida, which is like what you do if you're a New Yorker who's ranked very highly, you want to hit more balls, you go to Florida and a tennis academy. There I reached like top 250 in the 18 and unders when I was like 16. And then I had a mental breakdown, went back to New York City, played on the boys team at Beacon, which is a school on the Upper West Side Public School. We won city championships and then I played for the University of Wisconsin. I played some professional tournaments in between and then at 22 I retired and now I am a sad clown who jokes at night. Wow you're like my dad's dream daughter. You really are. Can I say there's also like a tennis to comedy pipeline I think because there's like a handful of you guys out here. So I realized that like tennis and stand-up are actually quite similar. Someone told me once a lot of comedians stand-ups are either athletes or addicts or both. So I, I felt that. And then with tennis, it's the only sport where you're really like alone, mm-hmm. no coaching. You can't call time out. And it's just like with comedy, you can't just hope someone else gets the line or something, improv something else. It's just you out there alone with your own brain. And then the variables of the crowd where tennis, it's not like just golf where it's you in the course. Tennis, you're competing against someone hitting a ball to you. So there is a quite similar vibe to it. I actually have a brother. And he was very talented too, but at like 10 years old, he was like, dad's too intense, I'm out. And I'm like, my dad is gonna fucking love me and I'm gonna stay in this until I can't anymore. It was me and my dad just traveling and competing. I wish my dad had had you instead of me. Can I tell you something? Growing up, (laughs) people used to call my dad Jimmy McEnroe because he was a good children's soccer coach. And somebody was like, oh, he's like James McEnroe. John McEnroe. Whatever, I don't even care. This interview is about John McEnroe and she went two for three. <laughs> but can I tell you, I knew it was wrong, so I tried again. Like yeah, I just yeah. kept plugging and chugging or whatever. I knew who you were talking about. Yeah, we know McEnroe. But anyway, the point is in the first chapter, he talks about how necessary it is to have a fire in the belly. And my entire life, my dad always said, the problem with you is you have no fire in the belly. And I was like, wow, he really is George McEnroe. I have been told from a young age that I have a killer instinct, mm-hmm. which in real life, people would be like, don't love that. In sports, that's why like some kid who's talented but quits versus some kid that's talented but needs it for their well-being. Like, I hate losing more than I love winning. I was crazy psychotic. But that's like the best stand-ups are psychotic. The best athletes are psychotic. We I think that really comes through in his book. Athleticism is important, but there is a point where the rest is mental. So tennis, the quote is that the court is six inches from ear to ear. Interesting. Oh. That's beautiful. <laughs> I was going to say, he like really talks about the way that he would torch friendships because winning was the most important thing to him. And he's like, now that I look back on it, not an ideal move, but I did win. So <laughs> I had to do a lot of therapy because like walking into a tournament, girls just represented like pain for me. You're just in the way of me finding happiness and winning. And it's not like a comedy show where you might not even see other people on the show. I'm literally looking at you across the net and I have to beat your ass. And like next thing you know, you're rooting against girls. Girls hate you. You can't be friends on the tour really because you're in direct competition with each other. Even college, my teammates were playing for my spot all the time. So I had to really get to a point where it's like, I will live a like hateful life unless I'm like rooting for other women and surrounding myself with talented women. And that's why like stand-up comedy for me is 
so much more enjoyable and like the creative unrelatable to me collaborative <laughs> space yeah i love that you're like so that's why i came to the healthy communal world <laughs> of stand-up comedy where we're all rooting for each other and there's spots for upwards of six to seven women on tv so like there's at least one spot on each lineup for a woman which is amazing yes. and i do <laughs> maybe I in, in brooklyn <laughs> <laughs> i joke like pressure to me was like a second serve five all like playing against duke and like choking like i had severe performance anxiety as like most tennis players do in different forms because it's a lot of pressure and with comedy it's like oh you message up a joke you could joke about it like it, there's a lot more room for error that I enjoy and you can feel like you bombed but you could always lie to yourself and be like oh I was trying out new stuff or that crowd was stupid where yeah. tennis it's like you're a fucking loser go home and cry <laughs> scary <laughs> talking to you right now is I'm like oh this is why I'll never succeed at comedy like I am <laughs> I'm neither an athlete or an addict and I'm like but I still think what you said is true it's just I'm not a comic and it's all coming together for me <laughs> no but you are a comic because you just took all that and decided why you're not worth it yeah <laughs> I just this is a conversation about college tennis Hannah Burner and John McEnroe and you were like here's how it affects my comedy career <laughs> I'm back in it, boys. <laughs> so John, our pal John over here, what is his reputation within tennis? And have you ever crossed paths with him? So I've crossed paths with his brother, Patrick McEnroe, who is like the slightly sweeter, less famous, less successful one who we love. Um, Johnny Mac, I probably crossed paths with him at a tournament, but I've never met him. But his thing is like, he was known to be a hothead on the court, but back then it was much more socially acceptable. Like Jimmy Connors, they of men having freakouts, and that was like a thing. Where nowadays the mental game is all about like not showing your emotions. Like Roger Federer used to break rackets, now he doesn't. That's why he's so great. But Johnny Mac has become larger than tennis. Where people call him Johnny Mac. Where now he's like not he's me. so he's so. <laughs> I call him Jimmy. You call him Jimmy. <laughs> But he's so likable. He's such a great personality. He's from Queens and he does a lot of commentating. He's had game shows in Europe. He's just a great personality, but it's funny. Like tennis is the one time I would have full on mental breakdowns where like nothing would get me upset off the court, like breakups, like anything. I'm, I barely would cry, but tennis, it brings out your like deepest, darkest demons. And um, he was always just like a great, great talent. And he was very entertaining and it was kind of socially acceptable back day for like angry white men to like be angry. Whereas women, if I did what he did, I would be arrested with Serena Williams, how she hit her racket and got a lot of um, penalties when she was like, if a guy did this, it wouldn't have been as intense of a penalty. Tennis is a unique sport where women actually get paid the most professionally with golf. Because if you think about tennis and golf, there's no physicality to it. So women are truly incredibly skilled at it. Where basketball, women are amazing. But because there's such a physicality to it, it'll never be like quite like the same as men's basketball. Professional women's tennis is like, I think the only sport where they get paid the exact same as the men in their tournaments. Whoa. I didn't know that. That's incredible. Because 
people love watching women's tennis arguably more than men's tennis. Mm -hmm. um, it's just a different type of strategy because it's the serves aren't as big and stuff. But I do think Johnny Mac has been very supportive of a lot of female players. But I do think overall, like when men freak out, it's considered like powerful and just like, oh, it's so manly. And when women freak out, it's like, she's hysterical yeah. and needs to be hospitalized. Like when men freak out, it's like, he just loves the game. He cares so much. <laughs> and when women freak out, they're like, she's mentally weak and she couldn't hold it together. And you're like, okay. I actually just did this sketch where it was like, when guys say girls are too emotional and it's like a girl's upset, a guy like forgot about dinner plans. And then he's like playing video games and he loses in FIFA and like freaks out and breaks his controller. And it's like- I've read a tweet one time where they're like, the best trick men ever played is pretend that anger isn't an emotion. And I just experienced like reality TV where I got angry and people were like, she's crazy. And this must be out of nowhere with no logic behind it. But I do think tennis was a great sport where I was able to like be myself and compete against men and learn a lot. But Johnny Mac is a great, great pioneer of New York City tennis and also just like giving a personality to the game mm -hmm. that a lot of women wouldn't have been able to get away with, of course. But um, he's just like a Hall of Famer and a great guy. Oh my God, nice, great guy, interesting. Great guy. Can I ask a technical question? Yes. He talks a lot about his serve and volley game. Yep. What is that? So is it all <laughs> serving and volleying? So there's serving, ground strokes, and volleys. It's like you serve and you run straight to net to volley. Volley means the ball doesn't bounce. So it's a tactic of running to the net to try to volley. Where nowadays people can't do that as much because of the technology where the ball moves so much faster that you don't even have time to come to net. So his game was a very old school game that isn't played as much. That's actually another thing I wanted to ask about is some of the materials. The two things he talks about a lot are the court materials. So like clay yep. versus grass. Yep. And then the other thing is racket material. Cause he talks yep. a lot about how he thinks the game should go back to wooden rackets. Cause now it's aluminum. The game has evolved so much where the rackets are so powerful and it's so fast. So it's like gotten a lot about power and less about touch and skill and technique, which is also like more fun. It's like baseball where they're thinking of making the and the pitcher farther away so the pitches aren't as hard to hit and it's more fun to watch. I do think that he was also in an interesting time because I grew up with like this was what rackets are made of but he was in a transitional period of like wood to I think it was aluminum so like you literally are changing the sport. He's a fascinating character and always spoke his mind and he got in trouble a shit ton but he was kind of like the bad boy of tennis and it made tennis talked about more and he brought it into the, like the mainstream media. My final question is, do people think he's physically attractive? Was he considered hot? Do you know? No, but he had that like bad boy swag about him. Like he has swag. The way he talks, he's so confident and he was rich as fuck. He's rich. He's charming. He's athletic. Yeah, no one was like, his cheekbones are great. But like Johnny <laughs> Mac was the guy you wanted at your party. Nice. Oh my God. Well, Hannah, thank you so much for giving us a little context and a debrief. I'm excited to take this into our episode now that we're experts. This is so much fun. Thank you for having thank me. Thank you so much for thank doing you. it. Bye. Johnny McEnroe. So Ashley, what did you know about him before we get in? So I don't know if you know this about me. I don't know anything about you. We've met today for the very first time. I come from quite a tennis family. Even the John McEnroe book that I read, I couldn't take notes in my book because it is signed by John McEnroe. Oh, my God. Did I show you that? No, but I don't care. It says, to Jim, my friend. 
That's your dad? Yeah. Or did he have a friend named Jim? No, it's to my dad. My dad's the Jim. Incredible. (laughs) So my family loved him because they're big tennis people. I loved him because he pops up at all the best moments in pop culture. He's in 30 Rock a bunch and he was in Wimbledon, one of the best movies of all time. And I was like, wow, there is really something to tennis. And I know he's mean. He was kind of mean to my aunt one time. Tell that story. She took a tennis workshop with him. And he just like kind of bullied her. True to form. What about you? I knew that there was a man named John McEnroe. You actually didn't know that because when we talked to Hannah, you got his name wrong like three times. Today, as I Googled him to find pictures of him and Tatum O'Neill, I wrote Tim McEnroe. (laughs) That is not close. Anyway, I did vaguely know that there was an angry tennis man. Should we get into the way this book kicks off? We haven't done this in a really long time, you guys, and I've missed it so much. I almost forgot. I know. And then here it was smacking us in the very first fucking sentence of the book. Shall we start chapter one with a read aloud? Sure. I hate alarm clocks. That incessant ticking drives me nuts. And so September 11th, 2001 began like any other morning in the McEnroe household with my 7 a.m. call from 540 Wake. I quickly hung up the phone, let my wife Patty sleep, and dragged myself out of bed to go rouse five of my six children. 9-11! Oh, my God. You guys, we used to really come across 9-11 in almost every memoir. None of them have been so bold as to start the memoir with 9-11. We've had a lot of epilogues that have a heavy 9-11 feature. He just kind of uses it as a jumping off point to say where his life is now and use it as a way to reflect back on his past. I mean, I'll read it. I feel that there has to be some real seriousness in my life and all of our lives since September 11th. It's as if we finally have to face reality that we've been avoiding for a long time. Okay. So 9-11 made John McEnroe realize that the world was ready for his memoir. And I think that that's the most beautiful thing to come out of 9-11. So in addition to Newlyweds, the TV show, we also have the John McEnroe memoir. Thank God for 9-11. Osama bin Laden didn't know that he was about to gift us with some of the best art ever created in the United States. A pop culture revolution, some might call it. Along with other revolutions. (laughs) (laughs) You know, people are like, it was a cultural reset. I don't think people give 9-11 its due as a cultural reset. It was a cultural reset. The introduction chapter did set up a couple things for me, which is one, John McEnroe is definitively unfunny. He might be one of the least funny people. And he's obsessed with that. He's obsessed with being unfunny. And I even had it highlighted. I go, are men not funny? Because he has at the very beginning, the book is called You Cannot Be Serious, which is a quote of something he uttered an ump one time. Ump is short for umpire for those of you who are not athletic. (laughs) And he goes, as you've probably figured out by now, the title on the cover is really half joking and half serious. And I just go, wow, men don't get humor. But then it turns out that's a big part of his personality is not being funny. And he hates that about himself. And then the other thing that it set up is really his grandiosity, which we'll discuss. Is it valid? Is it not? But something he says, a little bit of a question, he goes, back then, meaning the 70s and 80s, even rock musicians aspired to be touring tennis pros. Uh, I don't know if we're going to ask the Rolling Stones, who would you rather be you or a touring tennis pro? I think they would have been them. You're not a rock musician. So I guess you're not qualified to answer that question. So let's get into his youth. His mom's a nurse. His dad's a lawyer descended from an Irish immigrant. And they have that real 1950s American dream. Go to school, work hard. You can get the next ring up on the ladder. They moved a lot in the same neighborhood as a kid, always like going for the next big house. But they were comfortable. He grew up very solidly middle, upper middle class, two working parents. But something that I find interesting, he does not delve into it deeply, but there are a few little key lines that are like, his mom was a rock hard bitch and she (laughs) is the driving force behind his personality. Whereas I'd say... His father's the driving force behind his 
career. Yeah, he definitely mentions his mom being a real no-nonsense lady. Also, a very key component of his life is that he's from Queens. It's really important to him that he's from Queens. Yeah, he says that his mom has never been trusting of outsiders and she could hold a grudge with the best of them. And then he tells the story about how even though she was a nurse, one day his arm really hurt. He showed her. She was like, keep freaking playing, boy. <laughs> and uh, three weeks later, it turned out it was broken. So she was that kind of hard ass. We've all seen him. We've all met him. So they move to a house that's kind of near a local tennis club. He joins in and immediately shows quite a bit of promise. I think he's two weeks into playing tennis when they have a little tournament and he places in the 12 and unders. And then he plays, I guess, a month after that, the kid that beat him and beats that kid. So he's like six weeks into tennis already just trouncing the shit out of this tennis club. And I guess they were a pretty athletic bunch. And that was by design. And their parents were very interested in excelling in all aspects of their life, school, everything, but specifically in sports. So when it showed that he had an aptitude for tennis, his dad made that his priority. And he actually talks about this was, I guess, in the 1960s. His dad was a lawyer. He would take days off from work to take him to different tennis tournaments. He would travel him all over the world. He very quickly was starting to rank in the juniors and not at the top, but high. And he was getting better and better. And something that I think is very interesting about him and something that he says a lot is that he got better as he got older. And that was almost by design. He told his dad, I don't want to worry about being number one until I'm 18 because I don't want to burn out. And this actually it showed a lot of foresight on his part and I think it actually harks back to what Hannah was talking about the idea that tennis is so mental and that the burnout is so real it was kind of inspired that he said I'm not going to push myself to the top Mm -hmm. until the top means something well there are actually a couple things in his early life that I think are really interesting so he mentions that yes he was traveling and doing these juniors tournaments but he says that he was pretty light on tennis during the school year and he honestly didn't even practice that much during the school year that also contributed to him not burning out early because most of the year he was just doing school and doing other sports yeah I think he played basketball and soccer and football he also says that honestly if he had had his pick tennis wouldn't have been his sport he's obsessed with teamwork that's why he features doubles so heavily throughout this book and throughout his career a lot of other star singles players don't want to waste their time on doubles because then you just get more exhausted during tournaments you're playing too often and he like loves teamwork which is really interesting for such a lunatic he always goes to private school he goes to school in queens by the time he's in high school he goes to trinity and at that point he is one of the top ranked tennis players in the country yeah and i think another thing that's interesting about his junior's career is that he wasn't a yeller yet, but he was still a deeply emotional player. And his emotion at that time was to weep. When he would lose in the juniors, he would just wail like a little bitch boy every time he lost. And I think it's also important to note that he was pretty tiny. It seems like he didn't get his full height and body until he was like 18, 19. Mm-hmm. So he was always making up for that inadequacy. And I do think he had a little bit of, um, what is the syndrome? Baby boy syndrome. Napoleon complex yeah I think he had a bit of a Napoleon complex that made him so emotional that he was always up against people bigger than him and he felt like he was always compensating he also sounds like he was very awkward he talks about having a hard time with the ladies being the best at tennis didn't get you a lot of pull back in the day they were looking for a, a less sissy sport Yeah, so he was rising within the juniors' ranks. He learned a couple of really important lessons during this time. He does highlight basically every single game throughout this book, so we're going to ski through some of this. But some of the important lessons he learned were, one, leave when they call the game. 
when they call the game in your favor, just get off the court because he had a couple losses that came from a point that got challenged after the game had been called and he ended up losing. The other thing is that when you start moving up in the juniors, you call your own lines, I guess. And after that, they're like, you can challenge the umps. And he was like, oh, okay. And boy, did he challenge them. I just want to share this story really quickly that comes from his days at Port Washington Tennis Academy, which is where he grew up playing in Queens. He was a crier, but he was also always like a jag off. And he was always holding the team up. Or he refused to really train as hard as everybody else. He wanted to play games. He only wanted to practice when he felt like practicing. And they kind of let him get away with that because he was so good. But at one point, him and his buddy were suspended from the team. Mm-hmm. The buddy was let back on the team immediately. He never was. And he always held this against his friend named Peter Renner. He found out later that Peter's family, his two parents, had gone back in and apologized to the coach and had Peter apologize too. Whereas John's parents never did that. They were just like, if he's going to suspend you, then fuck him. We'll move you to a different place. Yeah. And so he had this resentment towards his friend. And of course, this like one resentment does not make an entire personality. But I do think that story about his parents and how he was raised, which is if they're not with you, they're against you. He talks a lot about the paranoia he has about the fans not being on his side, the umpires not being on his side and the way that that drove him to outbursts, which then, of course, got him a reputation, which preceded him. And then the paranoia cycle just continued. But I do think you can see right here how it was started by his parents, where it's like nobody can discipline you. Nobody is above you. I'm sorry, but this was a 12-year-old boy being rightfully held accountable by his coach. All he had to do was apologize, but instead they taught him when somebody's against you, you fucking bail. And not only did he leave them the coach he liked, but he became very resentful of his friend and had this idea of like, everyone hates me specifically. Another thing that I think is really important, not necessarily as much in his career as it is in just explaining his personality, is this part where he talks about a hard-won game against a guy called Walter Redondo. I think he was the number one junior. He was a clear favorite. He ends up beating Walter. Mm -hmm. And he says, I think ultimately that I just wanted it more than he did. As it turned out, he had peaked both in height and in skill at 14. He wound up playing a year or two in the pros, but he couldn't find his way. It's amazing how many people that happens to. They have the strokes and the fitness, but whatever is driving them isn't driving them hard enough. And that match was a real turning point for me, a huge confidence booster, blah, blah, blah. The thing that I want to point out is this guy, Walter Redondo, peaked at tennis at 14 years old flailed for a year or two in the pros is probably an accountant or something now like why do we have to name every opponent and illustrate every match in this way he goes so hard you are a world famous probably the most tennis the most no go with it the most tennis player (laughs) you are the most tennis tennis player that's ever tennis and here you are calling out poor walter redondo who's just trying to live hopefully in redondo beach a town for his name and he just wants to be you know and maybe someone someone who loved tennis maybe he picked up this book and he thought oh my god my old buddy john McEnroe wrote a memoir i wonder what he has to say about tennis and he's reading this being like oh old walter peaked at 14 and just didn't have it in him that old bitch (laughs) and it's like why'd you have to call him out like that he loves a parenthetical where he just absolutely rips a person to fucking shreds in a matter of words to be like at the end of the day he just didn't have the heart like i can't think of anything meaner than that even though he doesn't even say like a curse word there is this thing in this book you'll see over and over again which is when you get to a certain level of skill and fitness and talent it gets you about 75 percent of the way the last 25% I'd say is mental and I think that this book was so interesting because it really did go to like he became the best not because he was the best but because he was the most psychotic makes it all the more painful when these other men who presumably could have been him 
he's just like, yeah, at the end of the day, he just wasn't a superstar, had no drive. Yeah, at the end of the day, he wasn't disciplined. He didn't really want it that bad. To be like, oh, she didn't have the muscle, she didn't have the strength, whatever. But there's something about being like, you were just so mentally weak and you didn't even want it is vicious. It's a really hard thing to read about someone. I mean, and he says this discovery after beating Walter Redondo, I learned about myself that even if I didn't particularly enjoy playing tennis matches, I hated losing them much more. So he also talks about in his youth that he didn't have any sort of obsession with tennis. He wasn't dying to be a tennis player. He just was so good at it and his parents pushed him and he had all the facts in place that he was quite good at this and he loved winning. And so he became the best tennis player in the world. He says, when I look back, sometimes I don't know why any of this ever happened to me. Sometimes I think I was pushed into something I didn't really want to do. My parents thought that I was good at it. And better all the time. They nudged me and I went along. I was a good boy, an obedient boy. And he's like, it turned out to be an incredible thing for me. But he's like, they pushed me. He's so funny and resentful. He says, on a tennis court, you're out there all alone. People ask why I get so angry. This is a big part of it. I'm out there on the line by myself, fighting to the death in front of people who are eating cheese sandwiches, checking their watches and chatting with their friends about the stock market. Yeah. And you're also fucking playing tennis. You're not like fighting for your life, bro. Like this idea that's like, why do I get so mad? Because I'm out there all alone hitting a ball in a funny little square that we drew ourselves. The most important thing in the world that nobody else could imagine. Right. Throughout his high school years, he starts playing in junior competitions and he starts dabbling in professional competitions. And the way it works in tennis, so certain tournaments are professional tournaments and if you get enough points in those, you qualify to be ranked. He's playing juniors tournaments. A lot of times... The juniors tournaments work in tandem to the major tournaments. And so he was doing the qualifiers for Wimbledon. And instead of qualifying for just the juniors tournament, he qualified for Wimbledon. Gets to Wimbledon and he's really excited. He's like already getting in trouble. He was the bad boy of Wimbledon. He's already like throwing rackets and stuff and getting upset. Wimbledon is the first place he ever threw a racket and threw a fit. And he says, as impressed as I may have been with Wimbledon and its tremendous history, and unlike a lot of young players then, and almost all young players now, I really did have a respect for the tennis history. And I just want to point out, I think this is a very interesting aside where he kind of like shits on current players for not having respect for the history. I think it's so funny that he thinks the history of tennis should be so respected and important because it's like that's the only way he can stay relevant is if somebody knows all the ins and outs. You know what I mean? In 20, 30 years, a lot of the records he still has or his claims to fame, they're going to be less important unless you're like the top dog and he says he doesn't necessarily have the well-rounded perfect streak that'll make him one of the greats of all time right so unless you know all the annals of history one day John McEnroe can be overlooked and I feel like that's part of his fear and then also it's like fuck you history's anal (laughs) blast Okay, so Wimbledon. So like I said, he qualifies for the main tournament and he ends up making it all the way to the semifinals at 17 years old, a senior in high school, where he loses to Jimmy Connors, sort of igniting basically a lifelong rivalry between the two of them. And it's interesting because now he's returning home. He's always been this hotshot tennis player like coming up in New York, but he returns home as a bona fide tennis next up yeah ranked professional athlete and he says this line I think is really interesting and hella obnoxious the people I'd grown up with wouldn't let me feel the same or so I thought suddenly I was somebody while they were still nobodies I will say to not be a nationally ranked athlete at 17 years old doesn't mean you'll never go on to achieve anything but I do think that's how he felt about it I'm sure they didn't go 
well, we treat you different because you're somebody, but we're all still nobodies. Like, those are still his words. So after Wimbledon, he committed to play NCAA tennis for Stanford. It's also really interesting because he talks a lot about his hatred for conditioning and for training too hard. So he really picked Stanford out of the three tennis schools he looked at. It was the one where the coach was the least into conditioning, basically. Like, at UCLA, they were like, we run sprints five days a week and he was like not UCLA then thanks bye and it's like what a weird for a man with this kind of work ethic to be like but I don't want to work too hard is really interesting work ethic is an interesting thing to attribute to him I would say he definitely has a lot of drive yeah and anger and ambition talks about it in the intro fire in the belly the thing that I lacked as a child. I have to say, I really do lack it. But I don't know that he has the strongest work ethic because it's true. He talks about being on a diet of Hagen dazs a lot. He kind of looks down on people who work really hard. He a couple times tries to get back in the game. This is getting ahead of myself. But when he's trying to get back to the top, he like works out twice a day, every day. And he literally goes, I was over conditioning. He was like, it was too much. It was bad for me. And the two conditionings are like, one was yoga. And, yoga. and it's like, I do think that most professional athletes are working out at least twice a day. And then doing yoga. (laughs) He goes, I stayed in shape by playing tennis. Like he didn't do anything else. It was crazy. So he goes to Stanford and he's ranked number one for the NCAAs. He talks about this is the summer before he went to Stanford. So when he won Wimbledon, he goes, I won't lie to you. I was doing a lot of bitching and moaning about line calls during the match. I know it won't come as a huge shock, but the fact is I never really done much of it before, especially during my junior career. There was just something about the incessant grind of the summer that was starting to wear me down. I also think it was the feeling of pressure performing solo on the pro circuit. So something that actually was great for him at Stanford was that his coach allowed him to take as much time off as he needed. So he says he didn't play any tennis from like September to December that year. And when he came back, he was ready to go emotionally. And I think it is very interesting to look at him compared to his contemporaries who were playing that hard. Borg, Lendl, Connors, Vetus. Something interesting about John McEnroe that I would posit was that he like really was person to person. He wanted to beat that person. Yeah. He wasn't interested in being the best tennis I'd ever seen. He was all rage based. He was picking them off one by one. It's really interesting the way he was rising through the ranks being like, okay, here's the next guy that I have to overcome. Not here's the next ranking I have to hit. And what was driving him on the court was his anger because he doesn't have the fitness anybody else has. I mean, by the time he gets pro, everybody else is fitter than him. Most people are stronger than him. He is quick. He's quick. And I do believe he had an innate understanding of the racket. And I think it gets back to what Hannah was talking about. There Mm -hmm. was kind of almost a chess-like quality he talks about where predicting your next move by where you're going to hit it versus where they can hit it and then cutting down the angle. So I do think he had like real tennis smarts. So he turns pro and doesn't crush it at first. His first several pro tournaments, he just kind of moseys in and moseys out. Not a real impressive showing and he's having some back problems and then all of a sudden one day he stumbles upon a new kind of serve I guess he turns sideways had no one turned side isn't that how they all turn now it feels like he's trying to like walk through a fence and he's just like no one ever thought to turn sideways (laughs) we were too wide shoulder to shoulder but when you turn you're smaller (laughs) something else that he says at this point that I think is very interesting I didn't realize that like don't really have a coach out there with you it's just you in the court and so he was on this pro circuit completely alone I mean now even tennis players everybody has an entourage he was by himself the only people on the tour with you were your competitors so very lonely but something interesting he says is that anytime someone gives him a tip he writes the tip down on a card and he goes ever since I started out to this day I've written down tips myself I keep the cards in my tennis bag during a changeover when you sit I focus myself by looking at the cards there's something about that that's deeply sweet to me that he's like 
remember, remember. It's like he's studying for a biology test looking at the glossary. That's really cute. It's so funny to think like he's looking at one side of an index card and it's like hit the ball and then he turns <laughs> in and it's like pull your hand back. Stay even with the floor. Like, okay, okay, okay. Follow through. Follow through. Flick of the wrist. Eyes on the ball. <laughs> so here's the thing. He is, like you said, obsessed with his opponents. This is a part of the book that I found deeply confusing. So here we are at the beginning of his career and the next enormous chunk of the book, oh, we God. really get play by plays of every single match he's ever played. Every important point that has ever happened, he details in this book, which, like I said, if you're a tennis freak, you'll love it. If you're not a tennis freak, it's a bit muggy. I did not care. Truly minute by minute calls on upwards of 30 tennis games. But the important thing that I think is that he's also detailing these opponents and really painting us a picture from his mind. And the thing that really confused me, because I'm not hyper familiar with all these players, He sometimes calls them by their first name and sometimes calls them by their last name. And there are parts that it took me a while to figure out he was talking about the same person the whole time. Bjorn Borg. I did. He kept saying sometimes he'd be like, so I was up against Bjorn. No, no, no. This and that. This and that. Me and Borg were talking. I had such a respect for Borg. And I was like, those could both be last names. Also, Jimmy Connors could both be first names. Yeah. So once he figures out his serve, he starts coming up hard and he says that there's this very notable moment when he beats Arthur Ashe that there's just this palpable changing of the guards. Like the new kids are coming in hot and the old guard is being flushed out. And it's interesting to me, not to skip ahead, but to skip ahead, that later when he starts getting regularly knocked on his ass by Boris Becker, that he does not at that point note a new changing of the guards when it, to me, felt very palpable. Anyway, here he notes the changing of the guards when he was the guard who took over. And he also says this was a weird time when tennis was getting a lot of media coverage. Yeah, and he said... It brought personalities into the game and personality was generating media exposure, which was generating more money, which in turn guaranteed more media exposure, which in turn drove in even more money. Something that I think is very interesting is he talks a lot about knowing that he was at a line, knowing that he went off the rails too often and he shouldn't have acted out the way he did. But also saying it's a lot of people's fault because he was only twice in his entire life defaulted, mm-hmm. which means kicked out of the game. And he's like, the reason they couldn't default me was because so much of the spectatorship came from the fact that they wanted to watch me explode. And he's like, so they allowed me to push the boundaries and go further and further because it was actually good for business. Right. And he's like, I think part of what was so bad was nobody ever stopped me and held me back. He's like, I think if people had been like, you can't act like this, I wouldn't have acted like that. But it was really permitted. And I do agree with that. I think that if they had put their foot down and taught him a lesson, then he would have learned his lesson. And... It made him a lot of money. Before he was truly on top of the game and really succeeding, he had a name because he was the guy who explodes. It sheds an interesting light, though, on our beloved pop stars and how not only are you surrounding yourself with yes men, but how sometimes being self-destructive can be the most profitable choice. Yeah. And how not only are they going to not say no because they don't want to get cut out of the circle, but also they don't want to say no because egging you on to be crazier actually is the thing that will make your name bigger. Right. Here's the quote. The more professional tennis's money depended on me, the more things seemed to be under my control when I got on that court. His dad says, look, you don't need to yell. In fact, you'd be a better player if you didn't. And he says, I've never been totally convinced of that because he sees one, that his anger does propel him forward. And two, that the attention and exposure that he's gotten is a lot from his yelling. He also, I think, says to his dad at one point, like, what do you know? You're not a top tennis player. Yeah. There is something very isolating about when you're number one, nobody else is. Yeah. 
So at this point, he's number four, I believe. He's still not really popping off with the ladies. He's got this on and off girlfriend, Stacy, for years that he never really talks about other than being like, I was still dating Stacy. Yeah, Stacy was there. Says the way I was brought up, you're supposed to be very serious, totally concentrated. And this is why he says he can't make jokes on the court. Are most tennis players making jokes on the court? No, but he does talk about a couple of them who are able to really win over the crowd by making jokes. And he often alienates the crowd by being spazzy. And I think he's very envious of the way that people can make a reputation by not pulling negatives. He came up against Bjorn Borg, who was his top adversary. And Bjorn Borg apparently was this cool Swede. You never saw him sweat under the collar. One time in his whole career, he said shit by accident and people could hear. And that was like a huge deal. He was also deeply handsome. And he says he was the only tennis player to ever really have groupies the way like the Beatles would have groupies. The way that John McEnroe was in love with him. I was, I like, was in, love, I in him? love with him. <laughs> says between my shyness and my audacity, most people tended to overlook my real self in terms of making friends, finding girlfriends, etc. And I'm curious as to like who he truly believes his real self to be. Well, he says his biggest regret is never having been able to turn the other cheek, throw a one-liner, keep things loose. I should have had more fun doing what I was doing. Ultimately, I think it harks back me not enjoying competitive tennis that much to being afraid to lose. Okay, so at this point, he's number four in the world. He's getting pretty famous. He's partying with a crew. He's got this guy, Vetus. Vetus Grulitis, who is charming and hot and could party with the best of them. He, like, goes hard on all ends. He could be up doing blow all day and then wake up the next day and fucking play in Wimbledon. Nothing phased this guy. Vetus is also from Queens, which is, like, so random. So at this point, 1979, he's number four in the world. And this is an Arthur Ashe observation, is he says that there is as much distance from 10 to 5 as there is from 100 to 10. Basically, that top five is the steepest part of the mountain and they said traversing that slope is near impossible so at this point he is like we said hyper focused on picking people off one by one and he ends up beating Vetus to hit number three and it was this weird moment where this guy was his friend his party buddy he Vetus had kind of taken him under his wing and he well, still he had, had like, to more than his buddy he was his mentor he talks about how Vetus had like a sick Rolls Royce and he would drive around and John McEnroe would follow him in his like beat up Honda and they would all go to uh, studio 54 and Vetus would go in and everybody loved him and then John McEnroe would be like skulking the corner at this point John McEnroe even met Andy Warhol and said that he has a handshake like a dead fish we get a little section here on how lonely it is to be on this tour and scraping away for number one because at this point your closest friends are the people who are up there with you but you have to beat them he's talking about how he does want the best for his friends as long as they're not doing better than him so one of his best friends at this point is peter fleming who he plays doubles with and he says that he wants everything for peter fleming except for peter to do better than him at any point he also mentions this about his brother and i think that that is a pretty honest thing i think that that is true for a lot of people he starts to talk about his eventual foray into hollywood and being like a celebrity he's not yet but he's right in the shadow of vitas who is He's talking about going to Studio 54 and he's getting to go to all these places, these parties where cool people are. And he's talking about pretending to not be starstruck. And he goes, I didn't want to make whoever it was feel like I was taking something from him or her. I never wanted to be the way I felt and still feel toward people when they invade my privacy or ask for my photograph. All googly eyed. I just felt like it was a funny time to just for some reason take a stab at your fans. I know. I do think it's funny to be like, I was so nervous and scared of all these celebrities, but I tried to play it cool so I didn't look like the fucking losers. (laughs) (laughs) Those whip-ass, bitch-ass, googly-eyed hoes who walk up to me desperate for my autograph like a bunch of simpy fucks. So another thing that I think was a really unique and honest moment is about his friendship with Peter Fleming. Peter, at some point on the tour, 
starts dating a girl. They end up falling madly in love. It really turns into a real relationship. And John takes not necessarily an issue with it, but there's just a lot of internal jealousy because he feels very lonely. And this guy who's his best friend now has a girl that he's going out to dinner with after games. And he just like feels kind of betrayed by the fact that his best friend is in love. And I think that this is also really interesting as someone who is 30 year old single woman. A lot of my friends fall in love. I really recognize that feeling of feeling sort of jealous of other people's partnerships because you're just like, oh, they have a really good thing. And I kind of want that. But I feel like I get accused of being jealous kind of often because I have a couple of friends back home. If you're on the Patreon, you know who I'm talking about. whose relationships I genuinely don't approve of. And in those situations, I've been accused of being jealous. And it's like, no, because I do have those relationships that I am sort of just jealous of the general partnership. And I never take it out on the partner when I have those feelings. I feel like I've been accused of that too, of hating anybody with a boyfriend. But I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. No, I hate your boyfriend. <laughs> and unfortunately, sometimes all of your friends will have horrible boyfriends. And so the sample yeah. size is like, it, lo- it does seem like technically I hate 100% of the boyfriends I know, but that really is like a per person basis. I can't help that you all picked horrible people. Exactly. But I feel like because in my situation, it's not 100%. It's your boyfriend that I think sucks. <laughs> he also says something that I found to be very honest and insightful for a man as they're rarely funny or honest. He says... To be blunt, I guess I was jealous, doubly jealous, that he had somebody and that she had him. I had been leaning on Peter emotionally as my best buddy. Now, suddenly, there was nobody for me to lean on. I've definitely been guilty of that. When your best friend's gone, you're like, wait, we have to split our time now? (laughs) He has these sort of honest moments. In 1980, he finally beats Borg. Hell yeah. There's also a moment that happens that I want to address. He's offered a million dollars to go potentially play this exhibition in Sun City. And it was a territory in South Africa that was basically a huge human rights violation. He looks at this contract. He looks at this potential million dollars and decides that he doesn't want to be on the wrong side of history. And I do respect him for that. But it does kind of dilute it that he pats himself on the back for it in this book like eight times. It also sounds like... Mostly everyone told him not to do it. Like he was like, what's the deal with this? And they were like, oh, that's bad news. And he was like, well, let me ask another friend. And everybody was (laughs) like, do not do that. And he went to like every single person in his life and be like, what would you do for a million dollars? And they were like, anything. And they were like, would you support apartheid? And they're like, oh, no. (laughs) So he walks away from a million dollars. He's beaten Borg. Um, He beats Borg a couple more times. And in 1981, he hits the top of the mountain. Number one, baby. He is numero uno. He is a rock star. He is the most famous man in the world, comma, tennis. I also want to say, so he's like growing up. He's really becoming a household name because of tennis. And he's also being known as the brat, the guy who like explodes all the time. And he feels bad about it. He goes, I felt terrible. I felt awful virtually every time I've ever had one of my on-court meltdowns with the exception of a few occasions when I really believed I needed to let someone have it. Those really are the exceptions. And I've apologized a number of times afterwards to umpires and players. I do think a couple of things are going on here. Yeah. I do think he came from a family where they were like, you are worthless unless you're the best at something. Yes. And I do think he is a deeply emotional person. Mm -hmm. It started with the tears. He was never given the tools to handle his emotions. And then I do think he started his outbursts and he was like very much rewarded for them. Yeah. He was like the original housewife. Like your bad behavior is making us money. So then it's just then you stop knowing what's real and like what you want the attention for. He was pretty shitty to people. He says he would just like demand things like a rock star. He wasn't nice to his mom. He loves to have a girlfriend though. So he dated that girl Sally. And then he dated this model named Stella Hall. 
Yeah. And they moved in together for two years. They broke up. Then he dated a woman who was older. He won't name her, but apparently a famous woman he didn't want to be photographed with. Yes. So he ditched that bitch because she kept being like, let's go to a restaurant. And he was like, crossing the line. How dare you ask me? Us, a couple at a restaurant? Unbelievable. I'm going to Italy and I'll never call you again. Take a number. Another thing that's important that happens when he hits number one, at the ripe age of 25 years old, Borg says, I've had enough. As soon as he got knocked off the mountaintop, he packed up his rackets and said, peace out, bitches. And that really shook him because he didn't know if Borg was going to come back ever. I think he felt that since Borg was the one he had to beat, now that Borg was out of the competition, it almost felt like it didn't mean anything anymore. He says not having Borg, he had to like mourn the loss of him in tennis because beating him had been such a target. Not having Borg to compete against made him feel quite aimless. So as soon as he hits number one, Lendl shows up and starts coming for his britches. Here's what I want to say. Sorry, before we get into the Lendl, I just want to get back to the girlfriend thing real quick. I feel that he is deeply honest and insightful into what it is like to date a superstar. Because mm-hmm. he talks about how him and Sally had to break up because they were both tennis players. They both had very different schedules. It was mostly long distance. And then he actually has this very funny line about telling her that he cheated on her a bunch. And he goes, I learned a very important lesson that day. If you're going to cheat, don't tell them. (laughs) I mean, true. So he's dating Stella and she's a model. And he talks about he didn't want to be alone on tour, but he needed somebody who basically had no life because they need to be able to tour with them all the time. And he says, if I was going to be committed to just one girl, I wanted her to be with me. And since my job required a lot of travel, that meant that she had to travel with me. If it ran counter to her needs, well, I wasn't thinking about anyone else's needs at that point. So he's acting like an asshole. He says he was treating his mom like dirt. He's running around town. He's number one. And then Lendl comes up. He spends a couple years at number one. Lendl, he talks about how he revolutionized tennis because he was the first guy to like work out and like want it. So basically it's like everyone else was talented. Lendl was the first guy that really was like, if you just like work out harder than everybody else, you can win. He's from Czechoslovakia. Both of his parents were pros in Czechoslovakia. He's a big belly rude boy. And (laughs) he gives him a run for his money. I really want to talk about John McEnroe's mindset because as Lendl comes for him he's very interesting in the way that he truly believes he's never been outplayed in his life yeah even when I was younger I never felt that the guys were just too good for me if I lost there was always a reason I wasn't tall enough yet I wasn't strong enough I didn't play enough there are always any number of things the bottom line is it's very difficult to be yourself out there it's also very difficult to look in the mirror and say you know something it's me he later goes tennis really is single combat and it's exhausting to be a gladiator you pay a heavy price to be on top and at that moment it wasn't one I was willing to pay and so this is about his loss too Lendl when he starts losing it but I want to talk about that mindset of it's always something else to blame because I feel that personally we talk a lot about how guy comedians that we know will come off a set and be like I just crushed I killed I had the best set and we were like I've never in my life crushed because I hate myself and (laughs) you know what I mean me and a man could have an identical set and I'd come down and be like god I have to go home and like think about what I've just done and he's like great set for me and I do think that the mindset of being harder on yourself than other people are actually doesn't do you any good I think it holds you back I think a lot of it is like mental it's a lot of hype and I think it doesn't hurt anybody to be like oh yeah I would have had a great set but the audience sucked at some point you do have to get better and stuff but I do think like the way it saves your ego to always blame something like it doesn't hurt anybody the set was the set didn't change the outcome it didn't change but like I do think that that is the mentality of a winner to like deeply believe in yourself and be like anything that didn't go my way was an aberration. I am a champion. Well, I do think there's a line to it. And I think it also differs in a sport that has a clear winner and a loser like tennis and something like comedy, because I definitely see people who are genuinely bad at comedy, just coming off of sets being like, that was a good set. And you're just like, 
Okay, in what world? And those people aren't going to get better because they're not being hard on themselves. But I think there is such a thing as being too hard on yourself. And then it becomes destructive. Whereas with tennis, there is like a literal winner and loser. And at this point, John McEnroe has the evidence to be like, I am fucking great. I am literally number one in the world. I guess I do just think that there's like a level of delusional that you have to be I to agree succeed with that. at anything where it's on your own and it's so hard to be good at it because there will be so many failures. But I do think when you are that good, when you are a top 10, top five, you do have to have that mindset of delusion. He was number one for a few years and then he lost it and he never got it back, but he just kept going thinking that he had a chance. And that's a level of delusion that you need to stay in the game for a decade. Yeah. So on the next page, it doesn't really have anything to do with the general timeline. And he, he says again, he goes, an important aside, I think one of the big problems with tennis today is its failure of its current stars to acknowledge the game's history. If you think I'm going to single out the Williams sisters, you're right. That's what I was talking about earlier. <laughs> but only because they've done so much and come so tantalizingly close to transforming the entire game. What's held them back was making that final step is their us against the world mentality. Look at the difference between the Williamses and the Tiger Woods, who really has transformed golf. I just want to say this is such a glaring example of the standards that black women are held to. They haven't given enough back to the game. They're us versus the world mentality. He says all the time, I, he literally calls himself paranoid. He's like, everybody was against me, including the umpires. He didn't go to a lot of the Wimbledon dinners. At one point, he gets up and leaves a team dinner right before their president's about to speak. He does so many things that are so fucking disrespectful for him to come at two black women and be like, what have you done for the sport? First of all, they existed. Their mere existence has like paved the way. They don't owe anybody anything. They're just great at sport i don't know that people who need to be obsessed with history when i don't know what history has done for them there's definitely a lot of straight white male privilege in this book the way that arthur ash who was one of the early black rates gets so annoyed that arthur ash isn't blowing up at refs when he's coaching the davis cup team the way that he gets mad that he has to be like so stone-faced and silent it really felt to me like he wasn't acknowledging the fact that like as a white guy he has the privilege of blowing up and not having it affect the way that people view him in that way. Yeah. He could go, oh, he got called a brat. But he literally was like, I was in total control. They needed me for the money. Just looking at the way that people have been mad at Naomi Osaka for taking time off for her, her mental, mental health. health. They get to a point where they start suspending him when he acts out too badly and gets too many fines. And so he starts using those suspensions as a way to go home and get paternity leave. <laughs> not only is he not showing up to games because... He acted so badly, but he's doing it on purpose so that he can have a break. Yeah. He's manipulating the situation. At the end of the book, he says having daughters has changed his opinion on women. Yeah. Better. And I do wonder what his opinion would be now if he has been taught like what the difference is. <laughs> yeah. You would like to start the next section of John McEnroe's life with a quote from the text. But on October 1st, 1984, I was standing at the Portland airport waiting to board a flight to LA for a week off. And suddenly I thought, I'm the greatest tennis player who ever lived. Why am I so empty inside? Why do you think he was so empty inside? Do you think he had no guts? Maybe he was hungry. <laughs> do you think he remembered a snack for the airport? You know, my dad always says. You mean John McEnroe's good friend, Jim? What does John he say? McEnroe's good friend, Jim, whenever I leave for the airport, he always will just like start pulling granola bars out of every corner of the kitchen and just start handing them to me. And I'd be like, Dad, I'm taking a one and a half hour flight. I don't need like... 3,000 calories worth of granola. Anyway, he's at a party one day, and who does he meet? Tatum O'Neill, a young Oscar winner and the son of Ryan O'Neill, who's famous for playing Bones's dad in Bones. He loves her because they both act very cool around each other. He says, after all, someone else who's famous would never act like a fan. 
He hates fans. So if you're a fan of John McEnroe, RIP. He was very unhappy at this point. He was miserable and he was basically throwing everything. And he wanted to hang out with Tatum. They had met at this party and all they wanted to do was hang out. And he's like really fucking up. Worst things ever fucked. He gets hundreds of dollars of fines against him. At one point, he got soda all over the king of Sweden. And he goes, then I realized I was begging to be defaulted and they wouldn't default me. Why didn't they? The answer is simple, but not so pure. They had to put on a show and my presence put behinds in seats. He was exhausted at being number one, which gave cracks in the foundation of his determination to allow her to come in. And the more she came in, the more he broke down. And so like the less he was focusing on tennis, the less fire in the belly, which was yep. being quenched by her wet, wet pussy. Ew. I just feel like this is the gross episode. This is the episode where we say gross things. I know. And it'll never happen again. So if you're a first time listener and what you love about this episode like that, if you want more blood, blood. <laughs> if you're listening for wet puss, you better find another podcast you better blast your ass out of here we've got extra talkies if you need help can i say real quick are we gonna say the same thing one two three in, in the, the middle, middle of this episode, episode i got hungry for talkies that i had thrown out to stuffy and she ate them out of the trash i had just thrown them out so they were on the top of the trash the talkies are already in a bag the bag is on the top of the trash they weren't like literal garbage a literal garbage <laughs> speaking of trash talk Let's go back to John McEnroe. <laughs> so he's like hanging out with Hollywood all the time. He's, mm-hmm. hanging out with, he's going to parties all the time. And I also want to say this thing that he falls in love with about her. He goes, she had grown up a bit of a tomboy. So she did certain things unexpectedly well. She was an excellent pool player, a great frisbee thrower, a good skier. She was very easy to spend time with. In some ways, it was like hanging out with one of the guys. I just would like to make my point. I do think all men are gay. Yeah. And the women they love most are the women that are most like men. That's true. Hot girl men. Yeah. He does get his little boy best friend, girlfriend pregnant. He's honestly over the moon about it. He'd been dealing with this loneliness for quite some time. I also want to point out some other things about Tatum that end up sort of in retrospect, I think, being realizations for him. One, she was like a troubled child actor. She had a lot of drug problems. She comes from a really fucked up family. Toxic family. And so basically at the time she was looking to get out of L.A., but he was very infatuated with L.A. and the Hollywood scene. He was also looking to blow off steam. He was really stressed out by tennis, by trying to maintain number one. So when she should have been getting out of L.A. and getting away from drugs, he was really into partying and really into being in L.A. And he realizes now that the timing was really bad for her. (laughs) So Tatum O'Neill's dad was Ryan O'Neill. He dated Farrah Fawcett. Tatum hated Farrah. I think that's fun goss. At this point, John McEnroe is starting to lose steam, but he's chatting with Borg and Borg is basically like, you have to get back to number one. Number one is the only thing that matters. You know it as well as I do. If you're number two, you might as well be number three or four. You're nobody. Which I think is really good insight as to why Borg left. Basically, he saw that he'd been knocked off the pedestal. He didn't see himself climbing back up to that pedestal. And so he was like, it is literally not worth it for me to keep doing this. And John McEnroe, he was like, I don't know. Being number two is pretty fun. And his thing, he's like, I'm making all the same amount of money. He throws out this line about his mom where he comes home one day and he's like, I've decided I'm going to get back in it. I'm going to go to Australia. I'm going to try to play. And his mom's like, good. Finally, you can buy some diapers for your new kid. And he screams at her. He goes, what would be enough? I have a ton of money. Give me the number. Tell me how much money I need to make. Is it 10, 15, 20 million dollars? At what point do I get to go? Okay, we have enough. And I do think that that is a good insight into how he was raised. Him and Tatum have another baby right away, like the very next year. Yeah. He gets mad. He goes, I can't lose another year. The year that they have their first kid, he isn't competing as much. He decides to start seriously training to get number one back. But then his son is born. Like there's just a lot of factors that make it a lot harder for him to even 
gun for number one. So him and Tatum start fighting for myriad reasons. But one of the ones is basically he says that she blamed him for not having a career. His thing is basically like she's a shitty actress. He's like, I always told her to take acting lessons. She refused. Until Madonna said, why don't you try acting lessons? He said, my one rule for us, I completely support her. But one of us should always be home with the kids. And that being said, he goes, my whole schedule is picked in September, so I'm busy all year. There's no time for her to act. He's like, I'm happy for her to act just as long as it's time that I'm home. And also, by the way, this year, I will never be home. And you know how Hollywood works. You send in your schedule. Yeah. And they pick the movies based on when you're available. (laughs) So she wasn't getting anything. He was like, that's her own fault. She's like... I can't act because of you. He doesn't see it at all that way. Yeah. They fight more and more. Then for some reason, they have a daughter. He also has a hard time with the fact that professional tennis is just carrying on without him. Like he had created this belief that he was putting butts in seats. He was the draw. Even if he wasn't number one, he was still the guy to watch. And tennis is just continuing. In 1986, he skips Wimbledon. And then he starts to really sound the mountain. And he says, what happens to me is more or less the same thing that happened to everyone who's ever been on top. Once you've lost it, everything spirals out of control and it's difficult to find your way back. Rumors start to spread at the 1987 Open that he's fragile. He ends up getting suspended and using it as paternity leave for his second son. Tatum was 24 with two children at the time. And so aside from not really being able to act and wanting her acting career, back she also is just a 24 year old former child actor former drug addict slash current drug addict struggling with two children with parents that she had to flee to the east coast from yeah so in 1989 he's back in the game again he ends up getting from number 11 back to number four but he's fighting a lot with tatum like a lot of things are really spiraling he's trying all these new things where it had always just been him with his fire in the belly now he's trying out coaches he's trying out a masseuse he tries going with an entourage he's like it doesn't work out for anybody it sounds like he was just hard to work with everything's everybody's fault but his and then they have a third kid she's like should we go for a daughter and he's like ah, i don't think it's the right time and she goes psych i'm pregnant with a daughter so he keeps trying to go back to like when one more grand slam open and he never does son kevin gets diagnosed with some rare disease so there's like a lot there's a lot going on careers falling off his marriage is absolutely coming to shreds 1992 is a real banner year in things going to hell for him um but he also starts developing this broadcasting careers and then in 1993 when he's basically out of tennis he's announcing way more so he's still heavily on the road so even when he kind of gave up playing, he like immediately jumped into seniors tournaments and starts playing in these seniors games. He insists that people take seniors more seriously. He's also calling games like his tennis touring really never slowed down at any point. And that was really hard for Tatum. So they get divorced. He says a couple things here that really like made me mad. First of all, he's like furious that once they break up, she's like, someday you'll thank me for this. And he goes, I wondered about that for a little while. Then I understood what she'd meant. I think she'd realized that she was such trouble and so incapable of being the wife that I wanted that eventually I'd be happy with somebody else. Fuck you. Yeah, because the wife you want is somebody who will like never ask you to change or do any work. The other thing he says about her that I think is so fucked up is he goes, the love really is blind. And he's like, I now I know what people were talking about. I thought Tatum was a diamond in the rough, that I was going to be the guy to polish her up and help her shine. Now it all seemed idiotic. Fuck you, dude. You're a diamond in the rough that nobody's made shine. You're a piece of shit, little asshole. He then goes on to just cry all the time, which is very funny. His sons are like, Dad, are you going to stop crying? And he's just like, He's literally at tennis games pretending to be mad, but like hiding his face with a towel and crying. (laughs) He talks about his little passion for guitar. He says he's taken private lessons from Carlos Santana, Eddie Van Halen, Stephen Stills, Alex Lifeson, Billy Squire. I mean, he also starts getting into art collecting. He decides he's going to buy an apartment down in Soho and make it like an art viewing 
filling station. And he says at this point, he's so miserable at the whole Tatum O'Neill thing that he'll never be able to date again. Yeah. Within three or four months, <laughs> goes to a party in Malibu and meets Patty Smythe with a Y. Is it Patty Smythe or Patty Smith? I think it's Patty Smith, but isn't Patty Smith like a, a really famous singer? Yeah, but this is a different Patty Smith who's also a famous singer. But that's why I'm calling her Patty Smythe. Okay, we'll call her Patty Smythe or just Patty. So Patty, he meets her at a party. She also has a daughter, feels immediately at ease with her. He does not get her number, goes on to think about her for quite a while. Until one day, he is playing a tournament, an exhibition game against Andre Agassi, and he whoops Agassi's ass and he's like oh my god I kicked this young kid's ass I have all the confidence in the world I'm gonna call my friend and ask for Patty's number so he does they see each other again and then he asks her on another date but he has an exhibition game up in San Francisco while he's there he finds out Vetus has died this is obviously heartbreaking. This is one of his closest friends. And I was actually shocked and sad. He's like, I had just heard that Vetus was kind of cleaning his act up. He had obviously been a big partier, but it seemed like things were going bad. So he had gotten better. And it was just so shocking and horrifying to hear he died. Turned out the way he died was from carbon monoxide poisoning while staying at his friend's guest house in Southampton, which was truly tragic. I mean, yeah. what a horrible thing to die from. What a horrible thing for that person who's his friend whose house he was staying at to think like I killed him I'm really scared of carbon monoxide poisoning I don't know if you know that about me I honestly had no idea he's heartbroken he calls Patty he's like look I just feel like something's really gonna happen between the two of us I know we just went on one date but can I come over my friend died and she's like of course and he goes we've been together ever since yeah but I do find that like so needy and weird and maybe that's my own closed off psychosis to be like okay we went on one date and I just have to be with you because I'm mourning something like it's almost a trap like you can't be like no don't come well, over Well, I do think he doesn't have friends yeah and I also do think he's a serial monogamist he goes from one girlfriend to the next pretty quickly yeah he loves monogamy except for when except for the cheating part except for when he's on the road <laughs> he hates an open relationship he's a good old-fashioned cheater <laughs> He and Patty have been together ever since. What admirable to me. I mean, they're yeah, still together to this day. They've been together for like 25, 30 years or something. But at the time, he was still going through a custody battle with Tatum, which was an absolute train wreck. Tatum wanted full custody. John was able to really go in and fight for himself for partial custody. A few years later, he actually did get sole custody because Tatum fully relapsed. Really? In 1998. He doesn't really mention it that hard in this book. Patty is a singer, which we know. He's like, I play guitar. I want to play guitar in your band. And she's like, am I asking to play a doubles match with you at Wimbledon? No. But still, so he starts this band called the John McEnroe band. Patty moves to New York. They have a baby before they get married. They have a baby within two years, I'd say. And so now he has three children. She has a daughter. And now they together have a daughter. He started touring on the road and gigging with his band. Meanwhile, he has a woman at home who's raising his three children plus two of his own, her own. So she has five kids at home. She's a struggling musician because she's like had a hard time the past couple of years to get her career back up and running. And he's out there touring his touring own touring. As a spectacle. I mean, he, nobody loves him as a true musician. And instead, he is prioritizing his joke band instead of being there supporting her. She says this to him. She says, you know, you're doing what I'm supposed to be doing. This isn't your job. This is my job. And I don't have five minutes to think about doing my job because you're off doing 15 things. Because he's also still announcing. He's still playing in seniors tournaments. He's still art collecting. He goes, you knew who I was when you met me. I'm somebody who will never sit still. But it feels so deeply disrespectful. It seems like him and Patty have been able to make it work. He does quit the band like yeah. after she has that blow up but not because of that blow not up because though. of it they have another baby the book really ends with him being like i just woke up in the middle of the night because i my child had a had a nightmare or something he's like for the first time i'm truly a parent you know when i had the first kiss with tatum i was out doing my own thing i didn't care about anybody he says to tatum i'll be there 7 a.m to midnight other than that i need my rest 
And then he goes, and then of course with Patty, I had enough money that we could get nannies for there. And he's like, for the first time, I'm really knowing what it is to be a parent and how hard it is. And it does feel like it's softened him. He does seem to like dote on his kids and he takes them to school every day. I do feel like he's finally hit a place where he's been able to let go of his obsession with being number one and just be a good person. Not a great person. I wouldn't want him as a partner, but it does seem like he's getting more respectful of other people. I mean, Ashley, did you like this book? So I actually really liked this book. Obviously, every single book has moments where they should have dug deeper. Yeah, this thing with Tatum, I think, was a lot more explosive. He does let us know that it was uncomfortable and toxic and bad. But I think, I mean, I don't know if he was respecting her privacy or what. I do think when you have children with somebody, you can't be like, here's how many drugs she was doing. I do think that there is a level of decorum. And even though he seems to blame her, I think from an outsider's perspective, it's very easy to see how he was equally a bad husband. And he also has a one line in there where he was like, when I was able to look past my own anger, I was able to see that it wasn't all her fault, but I was just so full of anger. And he he does kind of acknowledge that his rage was a problem. So I do think that this book, while it was a little bit tennis heavy, I also kind of liked because I do think for the tennis freaks who are going to read this book, that is, there is an audience for the parts of this book that we didn't like. It just wasn't us. And I think that overall, he gives you a lot of really human moments. Great. I do think it was an interesting look into what it takes to be a champion. Okay. Well, we're, we're all different. You guys, love you. See you. Bye.